Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, Trade and U.S. Economics Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Loyal listeners will have noticed that this week's episode is a little bit late. Sorry about that. But we thought we should wait until after we got a deal. So picture the scene. It is Friday, August 31st, or as the history books will record it, NAFTA deadline day. The Trump administration has said that they were going to notify Congress of a deal that day. The clock is ticking. Then we hear that the Canadian negotiators have called a press conference at 4.30 p.m. on that Friday. Chad and I race to the Canadian embassy. He's got his Trade Talks badge on. He gets a little bit overexcited, tells the cab driver, take me to the trade deal. Uh, We arrive at the Canadian embassy. Chad's badge sets off the security alarm getting in. Chad accidentally appears on Mexican TV trying to take a selfie at his first press conference. Yeah, all these things are true. I was a little bit too excited, I guess. Okay, fine. So Minister Freeland arrives, and then... Uh, Ambassador Lakehizer and I agreed that given the absolute intensity of the negotiations right now, we wouldn't be negotiating in public. So I'm not going to talk about expectations. Uh, so not only did we not have a deal, Minister Freeland didn't even give us talking points for this episode. Turns out, Friday wasn't the real deadline day after all. The Canadians went home for the long weekend, and they'll be back in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday, September 5th to restart the talks. The Trade Talks team knows no such thing as a bank holiday weekend. So in this episode, we are going to try to explain some of what is going on. We're going to try to summarize what we know so far, what's next, and finally, at the end of all of this, how would we know if the deal was a good one? Let's rewind a bit. In May of 2017, the Trump administration told Congress it would be negotiating a new trilateral deal with Mexico and Canada. And last week, on Monday, August 27th, the Trump administration announced it had reached an understanding with the Mexican negotiators. That was Monday. Then on Friday, August 31st, the day of our ill-fated press conference, the Trump administration told Congress that President Trump intended to sign a deal 90 days later with Mexico and with Canada if it was willing. Now, if you take one message away from this episode, it is that this deal is not done yet. There are details that haven't yet been decided. There are whole areas of the new deal that haven't been agreed. And apparently there's still some uncertainty about whether the Canadians are going to be taking part. So question number one, what do we know so far? It does look like one of the big sticking points between the Mexicans and the Americans has been overcome. And that's rules of origin for automobiles. To recap, and this is a favorite of Trade Talks, rules of origin set out the conditions a car has to meet for it to be able to take advantage of NAFTA's zero tariffs. If you want to send your car from Mexico into the US and pay it nothing instead of a 2.5% tariff, you have to meet the criteria set by the trade negotiators in the text of the deal. Typically, those criteria include the amount of regional content that a car has to have. So with the original NAFTA, there was a list of parts, and 62.5% of those parts had to come from North America. Now, these rules exist to stop the European or the Japanese or the Chinese parts makers from being able to take advantage of a trade deal that wasn't meant for them. Where supply chains are global, these rules can be the binding constraint on car companies when making decisions about their supply chains and what to source from where. And that means that by changing the rules, by changing these criteria, 
The trade negotiators can pressure car companies into reshaping their supply chains and buying more parts from North America. In this negotiation, it looks like they've agreed to a pretty big increase in the amount of North American content that a car is going to need to have to qualify for these zero tariffs. And that includes new requirements that carmakers buy steel and aluminum from North America. The biggest philosophical change to these rules, as we discussed on Trade Talks episode 35, is that there will now be this new requirement that part of the car will have to be made by workers earning above a certain amount. And my understanding is that they've agreed that 40% of a car and 45% of a truck will have to be made by workers earning in the region of a high-wage zone. Wait, what's a high-wage zone? Good question. A high-wage zone is one in which workers earn above $16 an hour, but there are still some details that the negotiators haven't gotten to yet. I don't think they've worked out how big a zone is. It's not clear whether it's a country, a state, a city. I don't know how wages are going to be converted from Mexican pesos and Canadian dollars into US dollars. It doesn't sound like there are plans to index that number of $16 with earnings growth or inflation. There are a lot of details that we don't know, and the details really, really matter here. It seems like there's still some important stuff to work out, but it's pretty obvious now that these new rules are going to be more restrictive than the old ones. Even aside from that new wage bit, the Mexican government thinks that only about 70% of the cars that are currently made and exported from Mexico to the United States today, only 70% of those are going to meet these new rules. So these new rules are going to make it harder for trade and not easier. So in one sense, there's something a bit weird that's going on. Mexican and American negotiators just seem to have agreed new rules that are going to make it harder for car companies to trade. It's going to impose costs on them. And yet we're not hearing this big chorus of disapproval from the car companies. Maybe it'll come in time, but... I think there are two things going on here. So first, you might think that these negotiations are going on between the American government and the Mexican government. But actually, each government is also bargaining with the car companies. Yeah, this stuff is so complicated that really only the car companies themselves know how expensive these new rules are going to be for them to comply with. And in that negotiation, a smart car company is thinking about whether their competitors are going to be hit harder than they are. Maybe some of them haven't been complaining so loudly because they've been involved in the process. And one would hope they were involved in the process if you were a responsible government trying to work out how these things that you're negotiating are going to affect the companies involved. And the second thing is that maybe the car companies haven't been complaining as loudly as they might otherwise have because these new rules aren't as bad as the alternative, which is massive, massive tariffs. President Trump has been threatening 20 to 25% tariffs on imported cars, and that's part of an investigation into whether they're a threat to American national security. And the decision on that particular case could come out in the next few weeks. Now, none of the car companies want a 25% tariff on car or car parts coming in from Mexico or Canada. So relative to that, maybe tighter restrictions on how these companies are sourcing their inputs is actually okay. Alongside these new rules of origin that will appear in the text of any new NAFTA deal, it looks like the Mexicans have negotiated separately as part of a side letter an exemption from any Section 232 tariffs under the name of national security that the Trump administrations might apply. I would really like to see the text of this thing. And as I wrote about last week, and we'll tweet it out again, 
There's some really important and interesting economic incentives going on here that the Trump administration is creating with these new rules and at the same time having this threat of tariffs. It's really complicated. And don't let anyone say that we don't do teasers well in trade talks. Anyway, in summary, rules of origin are both riveting and very complicated. And it looks like the Trump administration has agreed new ones that will change the way car companies do business in North America. Okay, very briefly, the Mexicans agreed to some other stuff too. The Trump administration had proposed a sunset clause where the deal could terminate after five years. A lot of people really hated that proposal just because it would have injected so much uncertainty into the deal. It looks like they agreed to a much softer version. In this new version, after six years, the deal will get reviewed. And if all sides agree to keep it, it'll be reviewed again after another six years. And if they don't, then the deal could terminate 10 years later. Apparently, this is now being referred to as a sunrise clause. And, and sunrises are better than sunsets. But it's not clear to me exactly how much of an improvement this is relative to the original NAFTA deal. Maybe this makes it easier for improvements to be inserted every six years. But if this review process makes it easier to terminate the deal, then the new version of NAFTA is going to be more uncertain than the original. Other things that seem to have been agreed include fully enforceable labor standards, though it's not clear exactly yet how that enforcement would work. And it looks like the bit in the deal that allows investors to sue foreign governments, that's ISDS for acronym lovers, it looks like that has been watered down for some sectors. They've also agreed to protection for intellectual property on biologics, this new category of pharmaceutical products. Under the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, all the countries there had agreed to eight years of protection. And here, the United States got Mexico to agree to 10. Sorry if this all seems a bit high level. We are eagerly awaiting more details. But in case you haven't already noticed, there are not many tariff cuts being mentioned here. So far, the agreement seems to mainly be about non-tariff barriers. And that, of course, is because most all of the existing tariffs between Mexico and the United States under NAFTA were already zero. Okay, so these are the issues being negotiated between the Mexicans and the Americans in the weeks leading up to the announcement of Monday, August 27th. Now that we have the outlines of what they agreed, question number two, what's next? Well, now it looks like it's the Canadians' turn to fight with the Americans over their trickiest issues. The Canadians are fighting over this thing called Chapter 19, which involves American anti-dumping duties. I'd recommend going back and listening to Trade Talks Episode 1, where we introduced that. Also, dispute settlement, the rules there, public procurement, intellectual property rights protection, and how much access to the Canadian dairy sector the American farmers are ultimately going to get. But to be clear... None of that was confirmed in the press conference that you took me to on Friday. Yeah, sorry about that. Anyway, here is what President Donald Trump tweeted on Saturday, September 1st. There is no political necessity to keep Canada in the new NAFTA deal. If we don't make a fair deal for the U.S. after decades of abuse, Canada will be out. Congress should not interfere with these negotiations, or I will simply terminate NAFTA entirely, and we will be far better off. The Trump administration is clearly trying to pressure the Canadians into accepting their demands by threatening to go ahead without them. But for that threat to be credible, you have to believe that the Trump administration could get a bilateral deal with only Mexico passed through Congress. And Congress wants a trilateral deal. 
So they have an incentive to tell the administration that they won't pass a bilateral one. And they could point out that the Trump administration had told them a year ago that that's exactly what they would get. But that obviously weakens the Trump administration's negotiating hand with Canada. So the president is saying publicly to Congress, no, you're not going to be able to block a bilateral deal because I'm not going to give you the status quo as an option. I'm going to withdraw from the original. Who would win in the courts if President Trump tried to follow through with this threat is an open question. Right now, everyone is trying to strengthen their own negotiating position. It's really hard to tell who it is that's actually bluffing. And we've made this point before, but all this tough talk from President Trump does make it harder for the Canadians to ultimately sign up to any deal. His tweets are really poisoning their politics. The Canadian leaders don't want the story to be that they've caved in response to his aggressive demands. We're hoping to get into this next week, but Canadian politics is really, really interesting right now. Listeners should be watching out for September the 29th, which is when the Trump administration has to submit the text of a deal to Congress. The notification on Friday was a bit unclear about whether the Canadians would be involved. Once the text is submitted, I would suspect that it will be quite hard to maintain that ambiguity. Okay, question number three. How are we supposed to think about whether the deal that we actually get is a good one? We are economists, and that means that we are aware of all the million bazillion reasons that this question is a really, really hard one to answer. So first, you need to be really careful about what you're comparing the deal to. Is it the original NAFTA, the status quo, or is it a Trump withdrawal from the original? Or is it a situation with 25% tariffs on all car and car parts imports from Mexico and Canada? You then obviously need to think about what your measure of good is. Is it GDP? Should we care about gains and losses differently if some win and some lose? Should we care about the distribution of who actually gets the gains and losses? And, and how should we think about trading off any short-term disruption with long-term effects? We will get an official estimate of the impact of the new NAFTA from the International Trade Commission. So this is a part of the U.S. government that's got these teams of really, really good trade economists. The president tells them what's in this deal. And Ambassador Lighthizer, the United States trade representative, has said he's been talking to them already. It's then the ITC's job to throw all that information into an economic model and try to explain the expected effects. So in America, who's going to win, who loses, and by how much? The way this is normally done is by using various big models of the economy and treating the trade deal as a sort of policy shock. You use the model to think through how this shock is going to shift resources around between different sectors. So let's take a trade deal that, say, involved American dairy farmers getting extra access to the Canadian market. So what happens in one of these economic models is, so assuming America is starting from full employment, the dairy sector is going to draw additional resources into that sector of the economy and away from other sectors. So jobs and investment are going to be added in dairy farms, and jobs and investment are going to be pulled out of, pulled away from other sectors of the economy. So maybe moving out of soybean farms, out of pork farms, or maybe out of American manufacturing or the services sector. I asked Christine McDaniel about this. She's now at the Mercatus Center, but she used to be an economist at the ITC doing exactly this kind of thing. 
in general, these models are very helpful in terms of understanding how resources will be reallocated you know, from different policy shocks. So to the extent trade and investment barriers come down, then resources will be freed to move to more efficient uses. To the extent restrictions go up, like we're likely to see in, in autos, you know, then resources will be sucked away from where they were and into autos. Uh, you know, if those prices go up artificially, for example, wages or or, or other prices on um, auto parts. So it you know it may be a, a balancing act between the liberal liberalizing effect in in some sectors, and then the you know the more the increase in restrictions on other sectors. And we'll have to see how um, how that all balances out. I want to emphasize that the net effect here is a bit unclear. There are some sectors for which these non-tariff barriers to trade will be reduced. We can expect more trade to happen there. But as Christine indicated, tighter rules of origin for cars could actually add more barriers to trade in that sector. Over time, there has been a shift away from the kinds of trade barriers that are fairly easy for economists to estimate and towards reductions in these non-tariff barriers. They're really hard to think about. And can you imagine how complicated it's going to be to model changes in rules of origin? The car companies aren't just going to hand over information on how their supply chains work. And within academic economics, there isn't a ton of great empirical evidence on the effects of this sort of change. That's all to say that as much as we might want a really concrete number, the fact that this is mostly about non-tariff barriers makes getting one really difficult. It is really hard. And I'm not saying that these models are perfect. But as Christine pointed out, they do have some value we are going to start seeing some numbers coming out of these things. And to be responsible consumers, we should not only be asking about how much they're going to add to GDP or how many jobs they're going to support or even how much they're going to increase wages. We also need to ask who's not going to be winning from this deal. Where is it that the new rules are going to force people to move even when they don't really want to? And then how can we design public policy to make sure that those people are actually the ones being supported? If we've learned anything from the last couple of years is that aggregates and averages are really not good enough as the only thing that you base your discussion on. And as the politics of all of this heats up, as the spin gets louder and louder, it's going to be even more important to think about in a sort of calm, reasonable, rational way who the different groups are that are affected by this. Don't worry. I'm confident that all the Trade Talks listeners out there, they're going to be the ones asking all the really hard questions, digging even deeper and well into not just the aggregate numbers. I share your confidence. And that is all for Trade Talks. Thank you so much to Christine McDaniel at the Mercator Center, Flavia Volpe for APMA Canada, Kristen Chichek at the Center for Automotive Research, Wonderful and random auto industry emailers, the Mexicans, the Canadians, and the Trump administration for keeping everything so lively. Thanks again to Samaya's husband for being the voice of President Trump. And thanks also to Daniel Dale of the Toronto Star, whose intellectual property I borrowed for the title of this week's episode. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to a still undrafted text of a still unagreed trade deal, two countries are better than one. Three countries would be great. Sorry, I should have written that differently. Yeah, I think three countries is what Congress wants, right? Yeah. 
Should we start another Twitter account with three underscores just to give us the option? That's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs>